to Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God. Um, I saw on Facebook uh, last week uh, a Christian minister post something just before he boarded a plane. Uh, and this is what he said. Just boarded the plane... And lots of people have face masks on. Not me. I prefer to use the power of the blood of Jesus. Now, while I can respect this man's confidence, his post, I think, raises more doubt than comfort for me. Because instantly I'm thinking, well, hang on, what about all of the other Christians who have contracted the coronavirus? Uh, how come they got it? Weren't they trusting in the blood of Jesus? Uh, and, you know, that, that could be a very real possibility that we can put on the table. But, but then you think some more and you begin to realise that some of the greatest examples of faith that we know of 
are people who were plagued by illness. Um, now, fun fact, just from church history, Martin Luther, the great reformer of our age, uh, I think he's the case in point. His entire life, just so you know, was plagued by chronic constipation. Uh, he had kidney stones as well, he had dizzy spells, he had urine retention, whatever that is, I don't know what it is, but the research showed up. Uh, he was a man that was plagued by illness, and hardly somebody that we would say was faithless. Uh, we turn our eyes to the Bible, a much more certain source than church history, and we think about the Twelve Apostles. All but one of them were martyred for their faith. And then, of course, there is the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled, and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And so while the post of this Christian minister, I think, is theologically dodgy, I think it raises an important question still for us, doesn't it? Because why aren't Christians protected from the sin and suffering and evil of this world. Now, last week, if you tuned in, either in person or online, I outlined Revelation's picture of the end of the world. And one of the things we discovered, which shouldn't have surprised us, is that Revelation's picture was exactly the same as the picture of the rest of the New Testament. So rather than the end being this kind of far-flung world catastrophe like World War III or a coronavirus that's just yet to come, what we saw is that Revelation, like the rest of the Bible, it understood the end as one undifferentiated period beginning 2,000 years ago over here at Jesus' death and resurrection and then continuing to some unknowable point in the future where he returns to judge the earth. So in other words, what we learn is that it's, it's not that the end is yet to come, it's that the end has come, and we find ourselves smack bang in the middle of it. And so, so far as coronavirus, or ISIS, or, or whatever other kind of um, crazy thing that you want to point to in the world, all that is, is they are signs that tell us that we now live in the last days. So history has ended its end game. Uh, and we are called to see the wars and, and the famines and, and the plagues and all of those other things that plague our world as what they truly are. The early signs of God's judgment on a world of sinners. And so where we landed last week is that in discovering how we could pass through that, 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 that tribulation, we figured how we would finally get through the final judgment of God. Uh, we found out that by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb who suffered the wrath of God in our place, we could stand before God on that final day of judgment and come out unscathed. 
And so what we saw is that we learnt how we could beat the last level of the game. But I left a question unanswered, and that, that question was simply, okay, cool, once we get to the last level, we know how to complete it, but how do we get through the other levels to get there? Uh, how do we pass through the tribulation of the last days to finally take a hold of eternal salvation? And so that's what today is about. How do I get there? And the way that we're going to get there is through three visions. We're going to look at a vision of the past, a vision of the future, and then I'm going to present to you a vision for the present. That's how we're going to do things, okay? So if you're taking notes at home, there are your three headings. First heading, a vision of the past, and this is in verses 1 to 8. Uh, so let's start with the first vision. Um, if you don't have them out already, pull out your Bibles, uh, open them up to Revelation chapter 7, uh, and we're going to have a look at the first verse. Uh, and as we see uh, the chapter begin, we see two little words after this. And those two little words are really important for us because they signal to us a scene change. Now, for those of you who are literate, uh, and given this is a uni context, I'm guessing that's at least half of you, uh, it, it's easy to read chapter 7 uh, as you would a normal book uh, and go to chapter 7 verse 1 uh, and assume that it immediately follows what immediately preceded it. And so what came before was Judgment Day. And so our reflex, quite rightly, is to think that what's happening now in chapter 7 is in the future. It's after Judgment Day. But this is Revelation, and this is a scene change. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that the scenes are in order. And so what we need to do is let the passage tell us. And so what do we see? Well, let's have a look there. Verse 1. Uh, we see four angels, uh, and they're standing at the four corners of the earth, and they're holding back the four winds of the earth so that those winds might not blow on the earth. And then in, in verse 2, what do we see? Another angel appears from the east uh, and he calls out with a loud voice to those four angels who've been given power to harm the earth and the sea and the trees. Uh, and he tells them, uh, those who are holding back the winds, do not harm the land or the sea um, or, or um, until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Uh, now, that's kind of a bit of a trippy image, like what's going on here, there's some winds, there's some angels, there's a seal, um, and this vision really could mean any number of things until we go back to the Old Testament. Uh, and it's then that we start to see sense. Because back in Zechariah chapter 6, uh, we see that the four winds are described as four horse-drawn chariots. This is specifically in verse 5. Um, and we see that these four horse-drawn chariots, well, they're almost certainly the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we saw in Revelation 6. It's the same number of them, there's the same colours. And so when we start to piece it all together, what we actually begin to see is that what we're seeing in Revelation 7 is exactly the same thing that we saw in Revelation 6, except there are different symbols referring to them. Uh, it's sort of like uh, when you're driving in your car and you see a fish symbol on the back of a car. Usually they're speeding and you're just like, oh, I cannot believe this is happening. But what does it mean? Well, they're saying that they're Christian. But equally, you might be driving along and you see a car and it's got a cross on it. It means the same thing. Two symbols, same thing. But here, there's a crucial difference. Uh, and the crucial difference between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is the fact that we see here that the four winds... These four horsemen, they're there, 
just like in chapter 6, but they haven't been released yet. They're held back. They're, they're still in the stable, if you will. And so what we have here is a flashback. Now, now when you watch a movie, flashbacks are important, right? Because they reveal critical information to you at just the right time. You know how movies do that? They build you to a point of suspense or confusion, and then flashback. Something is revealed to you that completely reshapes the way that you understand or experience what is happening. And that's what's happened here in chapter 7. Chapter 6, it was a heavy chapter. It was heavy, heavy. And it was made all the more heavy because it revealed to us that even though Christians are no longer under the wrath of God on that final day of judgment, they are still caught up in God's judgment of the world. And so we saw that Christians were just as susceptible to famine and disease as the rest of humanity. Uh, we die too. Uh, we get affected, we get hungry, all those things, we don't get special immunity. And so we were kind of left wondering, does God even care for his people? Has he forgotten us? Uh, and I think that as we experience the troubles of this world, whether directly or indirectly, we think that, don't we? In our times of suffering, in our times of hardship, uh, whether it's emotional or physical, or even spiritual, we start to think that God has abandoned us. Now, it's a horrible blasphemy, but we think it, don't we? And as suffering and as persecution grows worse, instead of moving towards God in trust, what we end up doing is we start to move away from God in distrust, and we conclude that He doesn't care, that He's not interested, uh, that we might be better off trying to find another solution to our problems. And that's Revelation 6. But then there's a flashback. And that completely reshapes the way that we understand our God in the midst of our suffering. Because what do we see? We see God holding back the four winds of his judgment. And he will not let them blow until he has sealed his servants. And what that tells us is that he has not forgotten any of us. In fact, he's marked us from the very beginning. And I'm referring, of course, to the seal that the angel carries that they will stamp on the foreheads of God's servants. Now, this seal, it's not a literal seal. So if one of you goes out and gets a tattoo of a cross on your forehead, uh, well, it might be evangelistically clever. Uh, it's almost certainly going to be socially awkward. But what I can tell you is that it is definitely not biblical. So if we come back from isolation and you try to pin this on me because you've got a, a tattoo on your forehead, you, you're not going to do that, you can't do that, you've got no basis. Where this image actually comes from uh, is a vision that the prophet Ezekiel sees in Ezekiel chapter 9. Now I'm not going to go there and read it out to you, but I, I will give you a brief recap. Um, in Ezekiel chapter 9, he sees a vision and, and God sends his judgment on the nation of Israel. But before he does that, he goes and he puts a mark on the foreheads of those who are still righteous. And so as his judgment sweeps through Jerusalem and he sends in men with swords to cut down everybody who is in the city because they're sinful, they are not allowed to touch the ones with the mark. Now, you see a similar picture in the Passover, if you remember this. Uh, the angel of the Lord uh, kills every firstborn in Egypt except for those houses that are marked with the blood of the Lamb. And so what God is doing here in Revelation 7 is He is marking His servants for salvation 
rather than judgment. Now, does that mean that they will be unscathed by the tribulation of the last days? Well, well no, because we've already seen that that can't be the case. Uh, the suffering of the four horsemen, um, it is experienced by both believers and unbelievers alike. But the difference between the two is that believers receive a guarantee from God Himself that come what may, even to the point of death, we will be carried through the great tribulation and be found in Him on the last day and so receive eternal life. And so while we're not offered immunity, we are given a certainty. And God tells us that He preserves those who are His and He will not let a single one of us be snatched from His hand. We are safe. And that's why he numbers his people with the number of completeness, 144,000. I know that you've been waiting to hear what the heck is going on with this. Well, it's a number, it's a symbolic number. It's 12 times 12 times 1,000 numbers of completeness all bundled together. Uh, don't get thrown by it. It's not literal. Uh, it's not as if there's like 144,000 true believers in the world and you need to kind of rank up to get into that number and be saved. Uh, in fact, the Jehovah's Witnesses made this mistake and they actually had to change their theology back in the 1930s because they broke their church and they got too many members. Now, the problem was that when they changed, they changed it in the wrong way and instead of acknowledging that the number was symbolic all along, what they, they did is they came up with this two-tiered structure um, of believers where some believers were more important than others and it kind of had to do with rewards in the last days. But, but we know that that can't be true. Uh, because of Galatians 3.28. What does it tell us? Well, it tells us that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male or female. What does it say? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that tells us you can't have two tiers. Uh, and, and knowing that, it also rules out the possibility that this 144,000 is referring to Jewish Christians or, or the actual ethnic Jewish Nation. It's tempting to think that because they're sealed from out of the tribes of Israel. Uh, but we know that it can't be referring to a particular subset of Christians. In fact, I think this is making the opposite point. It is saying that God in His sovereign wisdom has chosen a perfect number of people to be His true people, Israel. A people which we see down in verse 9 of our chapter, if you scan your eyes down to there, is a great multitude that no one can count significantly from every tribe and nation, not just from the Jews. And so what do we conclude? Well, we conclude that God knows who are His, and they are a great host. But even though there are so many of them, He has sealed every one of them individually. Every unique individual is known and protected by their God. And so what that means is, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus, then you can know with 100% certainty that as you suffer, as you endure persecution, if you get sick, if you get hungry, if you run out of toilet paper, whatever it is, you have not been abandoned and you have not been ignored. It's not that God is powerless or apathetic or, or forgetful. It's just that God has chosen in His sovereign wisdom to make it such that the way that He will bring us to salvation is not to help us bypass the tribulation, but He will bring us through the tribulation 
and ensure that we are with him on the last day. So that's the first vision, a vision of the past, a vision of guarantee from God. The second vision, verses 9 to 17, uh, is the one of the future. And, and we know this, we have to do a bit of work to figure this one out, because again, we think that you know, it'll just continue chronologically, but again, we see at the beginning of verse 9 there, it says, after this, scene change, which means all bets are off. Now, now John, he's in this new scene now, he looks around, and what does he see? Well, he sees a throne with the one seated on the throne. He sees the lamb and, and the elders and the four living creatures. And so, obviously, we're, we're back in the throne room of chapter 4 and 5. But, but as he looks around, he sees something different. Because all of a sudden, there's all these people here. And we all be like, where did they come from? Uh, well, they weren't here before. And so then, you know, you keep scanning your eyes down from verse 9 and 10 and 11. There's, there's some angels, there's some singing, there's some praising. And then in verse 13, one of the elders asks John, do you know who they are? Uh, now, John goes for the safe option. And if any of you try this in my small group, uh, I'm going to get angry. Because uh, you know what he says? He says, sir, you know. I mean, come on, John, just have a go. That's a cop-out answer. But anyway, the elder... Uh, he, he's a good leader, he, he, he's not uh, throwing his weight around, he lets it slide, uh, and he gives him the answer in verse 14. And he says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. And so instantly what we realize is that we have moved from a flashback to a flash forward. And we're treated to a vision of the future where we see the realization of what God had promised to his servants when he sealed them before the tribulation began. He has now brought them through the tribulation and he has brought them into his glorious presence. This is a vision of the future. And I really want you to savour this scene because the picture is now complete, isn't it? If you remember back in chapter 4, uh, John is taken up into heaven. We, we see the throne of God. It's surrounded by the living creatures and the elders. And then we go to chapter 5 and we see Jesus the Lamb arrive on the scene and he's conquered sin and death. And he's ransomed to people for God. And then there's angels. And then there's praise. But, but what's missing at this point in the picture? Well, it's the people that Jesus has ransomed, isn't it? A people who, chapter 5, verse 9, we're told are from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so when we get to chapter 7, we finally see that they are here. And so what we're seeing in this scene is the consummation of human history. This is where it has all been heading. God has, by His great power, brought His people through the tribulation and into His promised rest. Now again, as you kind of savour this image, uh, if you're reading with Old Testament eyes, uh, this is a very significant moment. Uh, because it, it repeats a pattern that God established in the nation of Israel. See, remember when, when God redeemed Israel from Egypt, uh, from their bondage, their slavery, just as he um, rescued us and redeemed us from our bondage and slavery to sin, he doesn't just take that nation and magically transport them into the promised land. Uh, what he does is he leads them through the wilderness for 40 years before they enter into that land. Now, God does this for a bunch of reasons, uh, but one of them was to teach them that it was He, God, who delivered them through that, not their own. Uh, 
and you get a sense of that in verse 9, don't you? Have a look there in verse 9. What have they got in their hands? Um, they've got palm branches. Now, palm branches and other branches of that similar sort, they were used in the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles, celebrated every year, and it celebrated God's protection of the Israelites during their wandering in the wilderness. Uh, and here they have a similar meaning. Uh, they're waving the palm branches, and, and do you notice what they cry out in verse 10? So have a look there. By the way, there's lots of yelling in heaven, isn't there? I don't know whether you've noticed that. So nobody speaks in heaven. Everyone's always yelling, like the living creatures and the angels and, and people. Um, but I suppose that's because they have something to yell about. Now have a look there in verse 10. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You see, God has delivered them from the wilderness. Salvation belongs to Him and the land. And the land. And, and I think you notice this again and again. Now have a look in verses 15 to 17. Now I want you to notice the wilderness language. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. So there's that tabernacle idea. He, they make huts at the Feast of Tabernacles because they're sheltered by Him. Uh, verse 16, Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. So they're no longer in the desert. Uh, 4 verse 17, the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Uh, so they're no longer wandering around in the desert aimlessly. They've got themselves a shepherd. And where does that shepherd lead them? He leads them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, every blessing is God-given, God-based, God-oriented. This is what God will do for His people. He will bring them through their wilderness sufferings and into His glorious presence. Now we're going to come to that idea again. I want you to just sit in that for a while and think about how amazing that picture actually is. Every tear wiped away, no longer thirsty, no longer hungering. Because I think if the coronavirus has taught us anything, it's that our idyllic little lives in Perth and our laid-back, chill lifestyle, well, they're not actually the paradise that we thought they were. I mean, I went shopping recently uh, just to buy some food, and it was frantic. And I felt myself starting to panic. Now, I get anxious about some things, but this is the sort of thing that I would normally not worry about. But as I'm looking around, people are kind of avoiding eye contact, but they're looking at each other's trolleys to see who's stocking up on what and who got to the thing before they did. And, and just the selfishness and the distrust and, and, and the regression back to just me and mine that was, that's lying behind the surface of our society. And I think in that moment, I realise just how precarious our Perthian paradise actually is. 
we aren't as untouchable as we thought we were. All that we have can be just swept away by a single virus. And so in light of that, the hope that we see in Revelation 7 it's not an optional hope. It's not a, oh, God, whatever you believe is good for you. Oh, I'm glad that you have that comfort. I don't need that. Uh, the things that God offers us here at the end of this chapter, they're, they're things that in this life we just don't have. And by our own power, we can't provide. We want these things. And in today's current situation, I think we actually see in a moment of clarity that we may not ever have again, that we need these things. I mean, we chase after short-term pleasures and experiences, you know, iPhones, smartwatches, shoes, relationships, hoping that we can just kind of cover up what lays underneath. But none of them really fulfill. They just distract us from the fact that our world is actually not one of pleasure, but of thinly veiled pain in need of redemption. And what God promises us is that redemption. Not an imagined paradise, not a pretend palace, but the real thing. Now, if you're a believer, these verses, this is what you can look forward to. If you're not, well, this is what God offers you freely in Jesus Christ. Membership in God's multitudinous people, gathered around His throne, praising Him for His goodness and salvation, sheltered by His presence and promised rest forever and ever. That is the future, the vision of the future. And that brings us to our third and final vision, and the question that I asked at the beginning of the talk, how do we get there? So what I want to do with the time we have left is present to you a vision for the present. A life that is lived in response to what we have seen God do in the past and will do in the future. Because I think the temptation for us as we hear these words of Jesus in Revelation 7, that we are sealed, that God will deliver us into his glorious presence, I think the temptation is that we will overcorrect and we won't just be moved from terrified to assured, which is the purpose of this chapter, but we'll, we'll keep going and we'll move from assured to complacent. And let me tell you, those two things are very, very different things. Because nowhere in Scripture does it affirm that because God's promise of salvation is sure, He's sealed them, He'll, he'll preserve them, that somehow we can now just sit back and kind of relax and, and, and just not pay attention to our own spiritual condition. Uh, and if you want proof of that, all you need to do is head back a couple of chapters to chapters 2 and 3, where the Lord Jesus exhorts the seven churches to persevere. It is only the one who overcomes that eternal life will be granted. Now, that's a dangerous place to go, perhaps, because now we're kind of asking, hang on, does that, does that mean that it's all just thrown back on me? You know, God's promise to pre preserve us and look after us until the end, well, it's actually conditional, and so it doesn't really mean much if I can't pull my weight and meet him in the middle. Well, well, no, it's not saying that. There's no contradiction. You see, God saves us. 
God preserves us and takes us through the wilderness. But we need to be clear on what this passage is saying and what this passage isn't saying. It is saying that God will preserve those whom he has chosen, his people. But what it's not saying is that everyone who considers themselves a Christian can claim the comfort that is offered to them in chapter 7. Now that might be a bit scary because then you're kind of asking, well, how do I know which category I fit in? Am I chosen or am I complacent? Am I, you know, just completely self-deluded? Uh, and, and we know how to determine that. Don't freak out about that. Jesus tells us how we know that we are in the chosen category. He tells us in John chapter 8, verse 31. It's really simple. It's the same message of Revelation. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. And so what this promise in Revelation 7 is saying is that so long as you cling to Jesus and his gospel, you can claim the assurance of Revelation 7. And we see that in our passage. I've left this to the end uh, because I think really this is the, the, the take-home point from this passage. And it's in verse 14. So have a look there in your Bibles at verse 14. Uh, the elder responds to John and he says, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God. And don't miss that because the therefore connects the two ideas. You see, the only way that you pass through the tribulation of Revelation 6 and enter into the rest of God in Revelation 7 is by washing your robes in the blood of the Lamb. You take your sin-stained robes, your life, and you make them white in the atoning blood of Jesus. And so long as you hold fast to Jesus, so long as you hold to his gospel, the basis upon which your salvation rests, the promise is yours. So be careful. Let this passage move you from terror to assurance. That is what God is offering. But don't be so foolish enough to, to move from assurance to complacency. God's preservation of his saints is the reason that we bend all of our energies to persevering in Christ. Not the reason we give up. Um, it's sort of like, um, you know, um, Ultimate Ninja or American Ninja, wherever it is, Ninja Warrior, and they've got all those crazy um, jungle gym things. And I look at it, I'm just like, oh, I'm never going to do that. And you see them straining and you see their muscles pumping. And, and that moment just before they let go, it's like, oh no, they're not going to make it through. If somebody told them at the very beginning of the course, you will finish this course, and gave them the guarantee, I don't know on what basis would be, maybe it's a medical injection, maybe they're cheating, who knows, who, who cares. But, but in the moment where they're about to let go, if they have that guarantee that they will overcome and win, they're not just going to like stop trying, are they? They're going to hold on, because they know that they will complete the race. And so it is with the Christian. As we endure trials and suffering and persecution and pain, we have in the back of our minds God's voice, His promise saying, I have sealed you. I will take you through. And so it enables us to persevere because we know that when we are persevering, it is not in our own strength, but there is a power, God's power, that works within us to take us through the tribulation and into His promised rest. You see, preserved saints are persevering saints. 
So how do we behave in the present? Well, in light of the past, looking to the future, we persevere, knowing that God will bring his people safely home. As in light of that glorious truth that we should pray. Father, thank you so much that you comfort us in our affliction, that you haven't abandoned us to the vagaries of the world, to indiscriminate plagues or famines. Thank you that we know that as we endure and, and move through these things, you are with us and you always have been with us. I pray that you will help us to put weight on that promise, to know well that so long as we cling to the Lord Jesus and persevere in him, we can claim the assurance that you give us that we will one day be with you in that great multitude, praising you for your salvation. I ask that you'll forgive us for the times that we try to do it on our own strength, that you'll forgive us for the times where we doubt you, and that instead you'll renew our minds, lift up our hearts, strengthen our legs, and enable us to continue uh, in this life, knowing that what waits for us is a beautiful and glorious and never-ending thing in your presence forever. And we ask all of this in your Son's name. Amen. Cool. That's the talk. I'm going to disappear for a moment, uh, and we've got some time for questions, uh, so we'll let you start pumping them through, and then I'll come back, and we'll start answering some of them, eh? Hey? back but I'm questionless um, still waiting for things to pump through in the feed um, if we don't have any questions we can end it early um, which I'm kind of cool with but it'll be really good to spend this time if you've got questions from the passage to ask them um, that way we can learn some more and be encouraged from the word So the question, uh, is the tribulation, the wilderness, the judgment of God, or something else? Um, one of the things that's really tricky with Revelation 6 and 7 is it, it sort of only gives us one perspective. Uh, so for those of you who've been double dipping and you've been sitting in on the Tuesday talks as well as the Thursday talks, uh, both Tim and Ben gave us a really, really helpful set of illustrations to understand how Revelation is structured. 
Um, the best way to think about it is printing a coloured image. Um, you know how you've got all the cartridges in your printer, it's not like there's one rainbow colour that just produces everything. There's actually four colours, uh, three, three colours and then a black and white cartridge. Uh, and the, the, the picture is built up by making one pass with one colour, a second pass with another, third and then fourth, and then only after you do the four passes do you get the complete picture. Uh, and so when we come to Revelation 6 and 7, we need to take the picture for what it is, which is incomplete, uh, but giving a particular point of view. So one of the other examples, I think Tim gave this illustration, it's sort of like watching the same event from different angles. Uh, and each section of Revelation from kind of chapter 6 onwards is a different angle. Uh, and so when we get to chapter 6, what we see very clearly is the horseman, which is an image grounded in the Old Testament, is an image of judgment. Um, and we have to believe that uh, because that's how the Bible presents it. Uh, and so it, it poses us with a question, which is the question of, well, hang on a minute. If this is actually God's judgment, the tribulation that falls on the world, how come Christians are still suffering? Because it's not just that we'll be saved from God's judgment in the future on the final day. We've been justified now. And so in God's eyes, we are innocent, we are righteous, we are pure. So why on earth are we suffering in the world now? Uh, and I think that's the right question. I'm not sure that I have an answer for it. Um, I can take you to all sorts of other places in the Bible where we can talk about theologically why suffering uh, is the, the, the lot of the Christian. Uh, first and foremost in my mind is the fact that it was Jesus himself who came to the world, who suffered. and uh, It was only through suffering that he went to glory. Uh, we see this in Romans 8 verse 17. Uh, just as we suffer with him, we might also share in his glory. And so we see a pattern that God establishes, similar to the pattern that we saw in the wilderness, which is that we go through this, this trial and, and tribulation before we get to the promised land. Now, we can go to other places like 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, where we learn that, that that trial that they're enduring is the means by which their faith is shown to be genuine. Uh, in other words, uh, the way that we find out who God's people are is by the ones who go through the refining process of the wilderness uh, and show themselves to have held on and persevered, obviously under God's preserving strength, but from a human point of view, um, the ones that have decided to continue to hold fast to the Lord Jesus. Now, how those two things intersect, this, this trial that we go through, and the fact this trial is God's judgment on the world of sinners, and we're just kind of caught in the crossfire, uh, I don't actually have an answer. I think that's a tension that at least at this stage in the book of Revelation, we don't have. Um, some people try to make it out to be that God's judgment is through evil agents, and so that's why Christians get caught up. It's not actually God directly doing it to them. God has kind of said to these evil agents, whether de demonic or human or whatever, go and, and release my punishment on the world. Um, and so therefore they do that. They attack the Christians and God just kind of lets it happen. I, I don't think I'm comfortable with that um, because it makes God out to not be sovereign. He must have a purpose, but I, I'm not sure what it is. So that's everything that I know around the issue. Hopefully that'll help you think it through. What are the palm branches in verse 9 symbolic of? Cool. So, verse 9, what are the palm branches symbolic of? Um, I mentioned this in the talk. Um, they turn up in a feast known as the Feast of Tabernacles, um, where they take a whole bunch of these branches, or wave them around, but they also use them to build huts, and they live in huts for a week, 
uh, to remind them that God took them through the wilderness. Um, now, some other things that they might be, which I think is quite significant, uh, Ben Ray said this on, in the Tuesday talk, um, you see people waving palm branches around uh, when their king, the Messiah, the one who is meant to save them, turns up. Uh, so you see them being waved when um, David rocks up uh, in his kingdom in the Old Testament. You see them being waved when Jesus turns up to Jerusalem in the Gospels. Um, and one of the things that Ben said, which I, I didn't know, but I thought this was really, really cool, is that every time you see them waving the par branches, they yell out, Hosanna, uh, which is Hebrew for God save, God save us. It's a call for God to save. But when you get to Revelation 7, you see the same palm branches, but do you notice in verse 10 the different thing that they say? They don't say Hosanna. They say salvation belongs to our God. So instead of God save, it's God has saved. Uh, and so the palm branches are a symbol of that. Cool. Um, those are the only questions we've gotten in the feed. Hopefully that's useful for you. Um, we're going to log off now and finish the live feed, but we really do hope and trust that you'll continue to persevere in your faith, even as you're locked in home. So we'll catch you later. Hey?